the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, October mass markets with lots of treats and a few neat tricks. Saviors and heretics on a tour of duty to bring the burdens of the dead to the devil's opera. Plus part 29 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. This time I step to the other side of the mic along with David Drake, and we talk about our new entry in the general series, The Savior. This book is the sequel to The Heretic, and it's book 10 in the general series. The Savior can be read alone, or it can be read as uh, like one big book with The Heretic if you want to get them both. And I would but I already have them. It was great to hang out with Dave Drake and let David F. Sherirad ask the questions this time. He's a great guest host, and he is also the editor of an anthology Bain is putting out next year, The Year's Best of Military and Adventure Science Fiction, and this will be volume one of what we hope might be a series. We also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. It's read by Bronson Pinchot. But first, here's the news. The October mass market paperbacks have escaped the corral and are at booksellers now. These include Burdens of the Dead by Mercedes Lackey, Eric Flint, and Dave Freer. This is a new entry in the Heirs of Alexandria series. These are great historical fantasies set mostly in the 15th century uh, Constantinople and Venice. In a world where the Library of Alexandria was saved and it had scrolls that communicated magical power to people, and magic is now afoot in the world. Also out is Tour of Duty by Michael Z. Williamson. This is a most excellent story collection. I was uh, an editor on this. But there's a part two bonus, a collection of provocative and some very funny essays by Mad Mike himself. It's a really fun collection. We devoted a podcast to talking about this with him previously, so check that out too. Also a book we've talked about here on the Bain Free Radio Hour, 1636, The Devil's Opera by Eric Flint and David Carrico. We've interviewed them both about this book. This is an entry in Eric Flint's Ring of Fire alternate history series. It's set in Magdeburg, the capital of the new United States of Europe, and it's a murder mystery featuring a pair of detectives from uptime and downtime. One is one, one is the other, right? Fun stuff. Burns of the Dead, Tour of Duty, and 1636, The Devil's Opera are all out at booksellers everywhere. Hello out there in podcast land. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you might recognize my voice from a little bit back. I'm David Afshirod, and it's a real pleasure to be back behind the mic for this exciting interview, all about the new novel available from Bain Books, The Savior. Here to talk with me is David Drake. He's the best-selling master of military science fiction whose work you all know and love. And if you don't love it, give it a shot and I'm sure you will. David is the co-author of The Savior and its prequel, The Heretic, which is now available in paperback. He's also the author of the wildly popular RCN series. 
The latest book in that series, The Sea Without a Shore, is out now, and a collection of his time travel stories is also available. It's called Dinosaurs in a Dirigible, and if that doesn't make your inner child jump up and down, well, I can't help you. I had the pleasure of hosting a roundtable discussion on A.E. Van Vogt some time back with Dave, and it's great to be able to get to talk with him again. Uh, Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You'll also be hearing quite a bit from another voice, one you will no doubt recognize. He's an editor at Bain Books and the host of your favorite podcast, but today he's here as the co-author of The Savior. Of course, I'm talking about none other than Mr. Tony Daniel. Tony also co-wrote The Heretic with David Drake, and he's the author of Guardian of Night and the Hugo-nominated short story Life on the Moon. That story, by the way, won the Asimov's Reader's Poll Award. Other stories he's written have been frequently anthologized in various years' best anthologies. Tony, how does it feel to be on the other side of the microphone for a change? Yeah, it's really nice. I'm glad I gave you an A when you were an undergraduate. Yeah, this worked out well for you. You were thinking, you know, you had the, uh, the long view on that. Just like the evil computer in The Savior, yes. Exactly, yes. Uh, so as I mentioned, The Savior is the sequel to The Heretic, but more than that, it's also the ninth book in what's known as the General Series. Uh, Dave, since you originated the series, uh, let me ask you maybe just to give a brief summary of sort of the central idea of the series, what it's all about, uh, just to get those who maybe haven't read the first seven, eight books in the series up to speed. Jim Bain had the bright idea he was reading about the the concept of the indirect approach that uh, Colonel Littlehart had come up with. And rather than attacking the enemy where he's strongest, you move to the side, take something he has to hold, and then he's forced to attack you. This is the indirect approach. And Littlehart used as his the perfect exemplar of this, the Byzantine general Belisarius. And Jim asked me to do a series of outlines based on the life of Belisarius in a science fiction setting. Okay, so I, uh, I did. So I, I did three volumes. I did four. And one of them got split in two because uh, (laughs) Steve Sterling, who was developing the outlines into a book, um, got, he'd given them a length, and it was coming in about 150 pages above that length. And since it was also a little overdue, uh, they'd already cut the covers, and they weren't going to stretch. So we literally had to split the book. It was the the third, which became the third and fourth. Uh, We split them uh, in order to fit the covers, which were already created. Uh, This is how publishing really works. (laughs) It worked out pretty well. And Jim was quite pleased with the the books and, uh, and the sales. And he decided he wanted a follow-up series that uh, would get more of the same stuff out. So I did four more outlines. And uh, these were um, sought on other planets with other problems. Uh, One of them I used had a... uh, 
basically Republican Rome setting. And uh, one was based on Steve Sterling's own Draca series, because Steve was developing these at the time. And uh, one was Egyptian. And then one, <laughs> which will not be published, uh, but Jim absolutely wanted it. He, um, this was Jane Fonda Planet, in which uh, the, the crazy liberals are in charge of everything and have this brutal dictatorship of crazy liberalism. And um, I can write that one, too. Does that exist? Does that outline exist? Oh, hell yes. I want to find that. Uh, the Green Planet. I, I probably have a copy in my file. I don't, I'm sure Tony has read it. Um, Jim sort of felt bad about that after the fact, but I did execute it to his direction. <laughs> I, you know, uh, uh, Jane Fonda isn't, a, I'm a nom vet. Jane Fonda isn't a favorite of mine either. Uh, but uh, the, the Chosen... Steve wrote uh, with some difficulty because it it was very very hard for him to show his you know his structure failing uh, which it does uh, pretty thoroughly and there's that's the only one in which I have done something other than merely write the outline. Uh, in The Chosen, there are a couple of short chapters that I actually wrote because Steve called me and asked me to get him off top dead center, which I did. Uh, very short. Uh, the, the work is Steve's. Don't, don't mistake what I'm saying. But I have actually, I, I did write some raw copy on that. Um, he then did half of the Roman outline and... Uh, Press of other business caused him to uh, go do other things rather than the rest of the series. And uh, so Eric Flint did the other half of the Roman outline. Um, but Eric's career is going great guns, obviously. And um, so Eric did the one but he couldn't do the uh, the other and um so the egyptian outline and the green planet uh just sort of lay fallow um and then tony took over and started looking through tony wisecoff yeah the other the other tony yeah uh tony started looking not at outlines but at outstanding contracts and she initially <laughs> uh, asked me how I was going to pay back the money I'd gotten for uh, the other two outlines and I I was polite about that and I said I would of course write her a check if that's what she wanted uh, but I, then after some discussion, I realized she didn't remember that I'd actually written 
the outline. She then asked, well, would it be okay if she had Tony Daniel develop the, uh, the, the Egyptian one? I said, Tony, you own these. Do anything you please with them. Well, uh, one thing you, we should mention is that when Dave says he wrote the outline, these are not like three-page outlines. We're talking like 10, 15,000, 20,000 word outlines that are that are quite specific. And uh, I mean, there's sections in the book I could just pull out of them. So. <laughs> well, that was the idea. Yeah, and we should, and we should mention... Um, if you're interested in going back to the series, either revisiting it or um, you know reading it for the first time, Bain is reissuing all the books, right? They're doing, I think, omnibus editions of two, two novels in one book. And I think three of the four are out now. Is that right, Tony? Yeah, and Dave came up with the titles. <laughs> They're all hope something, hope yeah. re something. Yeah, hope hope rearmed, hope reformed. Yeah. Uh, my my notion was that there would be the the focal word hope that people would now realize that it was all one series. What I didn't realize and understand, Tony told me I needed titles, and so I came up with titles while I was on the phone with Tony. And what I didn't realize is that I wouldn't remember which one was which, and nobody in the office would remember which one was which, and it's driving Jenny Ferris, the book designer, nuts. Uh, it, it was a really stupid thing to do, and I apologize for doing it, and I personally did it. Let me be clear on that. I did it. So uh, I was just going to also, we... Uh, when Dave was talking, he he kept saying the outline, the outline. But we have two books here, um, Tony, the Heretic and the Savior. Um, but these came; these were originally planned to be one. Is that right? And how did they uh, grow from one, what was supposed to be one one off kind of thing, into a two novel? I guess we're going to call it a duology. How did that come about? That uh, a, a one outline became two books. Dave says that he can write a book off of his outline. Yes, I do <laughs> repeatedly. But it's quite, it's quite, I mean, like I said, they're very, uh, they're, they're detailed and they keep, and, and they're imaginative. And I kept getting ideas of how I would develop this or that. And before I knew it, I had, I had a hundred thousand words and I'm, there was no way I was going to finish this thing. Um, and so I asked Tony if it was okay. And she said, yes, uh, but we had to ask Dave. And so we and, asked Dave, and we... <laughs> and Dave said, yeah, call the second one the Savior. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that was my input. Dave comes up with the titles. Mm. Well, so um, let's talk a little bit about the Savior. In The Heretic, we meet Abel Dashian as he grows from a young boy into a hero. And I don't want to spoil the, the book too much, but his work is really just beginning in The Savior. Uh, he lives on the planet Diceberg, and like most planets, it's part of a part of a once great galactic republic that's uh, kind of since fallen back uh, into, shall we say, pre-technological uh, times. Um, and Tony, maybe you can explain um, just a little bit. Abel's got some. For those who haven't read The Heretic, he's got a little bit of help uh, in the form of uh, Center and Raj Whitehall. Who are? Could you just briefly tell us who they are and uh, their relationship to Abel? Well, there. Um, what happened in the collapse is that most of the computer systems were destroyed or, or went down, 
as well, but some of them that were hardened, uh, mostly they were military computers. This is from the, the beginning of the series, um, survived. And on, uh, now I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on, uh, Raj Whitehall's planet's name. It's Bell Bellevue. Bellevue. Yes. Yes. Uh, one that was named center, uh, survived and center is, was, is extremely utilitarian AI doesn't have any Kantian notions of, of, um, of what's right and wrong, what, except for the long view center will use people. And he picked out a, a young, very promising after finding a, going through a few who he killed, um, a very promising young warrior who he helps and trains by being a presence in his mind. And this was Raj Whitehall. Raj Whitehall went on to pull his planet up out of the Dark Ages, or or the semi-Dark Ages, the I guess Dark Ages, seventeen sixteen hundred technology, maybe something like. So after when Raj died, um, or didn't die, we don't know exactly what happened to him. Uh, it, they the rest of the planets out there needed uplifting as well, back to this uh, state of technology. Um, and it was Center's task to to do this, or that's the way Center interpreted his his orders. And so there was a copy made of Raj's mentality as well. And these were sent out to whatever uh, whatever planets uh, that that they could get to. And some of the the trips took hundreds of years. And there's and and so Center and Raj are AIs, and they arrive on on Diceberg. Um, and take 300 years picking through possible candidates until they finally arrive at six-year-old Abel Dashian, who who wanders into uh, where their capsule is being kept by the priesthood um, on this Egypt-like planet, this ancient Egypt sort of uh, uh, politically arranged planet. And the reason it's like ancient Egypt is because a an AI has survived on this planet, unlike Bellevue. Um, this one wants things to stay exactly the same. And this is Zentrum, who, uh, who becomes the opponent of Center and Raj and Abel, the sort of behind-the-scenes background opponent throughout, because uh, Abel's an agent of change, and that's the last thing that uh, Zentrum wants to happen. There's a ticking time bomb as well, of sorts, because um, the planet's in an unstable area, um, and... Sooner or later, the place is going to get bombed with asteroids, and, and if they aren't at a certain technological level, they're going to be wiped out. Um, and this is something that Center says Zentrum has not really taken into account because he's such a land-based uh, entity. Yeah, Zentrum's convinced uh, everyone that he's God, essentially. They worship him, they build temples to him, there's a priesthood. And yet he wants to maintain what's you said, you know, it's called the stasis, you know, capital S on that. And that is that technology shouldn't be allowed to advance past a certain point, which is sort of, they've got, you know, what, um, sort of muskets. But other than that, there's really not a whole lot of, uh, you know, advanced, anything more advanced than that on there. They have, in the Heretic, they have cap firing muskets. Um, and the big advance that is introduced in the Savior is uh, what I called Dave up and asked what it could be. <laughs> and he said, revolving rifles. Yeah, yeah so, uh, so. 
Tony Tony wanted to make it lever action, but I thought, oh, everybody does that. Uh, let's make them revolvers. So, um, so Zintrum wants to maintain the stasis, and one way he does this, and this is set up in the Heretic, and we see more of it in the Savior, is the Blood Winds, um, what's known as the Blood Winds, which are these, you know, barbarian hordes that ride in uh, periodically. Um, I don't know. I just thought that was an interesting idea of how how that was used. And I'm just wondering if Tony or David, you could talk a little bit about the blood winds and um, what kind of challenges they uh, they pose to Abel in in this novel. the The idea was basically uh, Egypt was a great power during um, most of the the classical pre classical period. Um, but at points when Egypt was relatively weak, they were, uh, you know, basically invaded, and the ruling authority became that of the conquerors. It, it was the population was never replaced, but you had Libyans and you had, um, well, Canaanites as we now know they were. Uh, and Nubians at some times, and then finally uh, Greeks uh, conquering it, replacing the existing power structure, uh, continuing the, the way things had always been done. But I, what the supercomputer, what Centrum is doing is consciously using this to shatter the the egyptians actually never <laughs> had much interest in progress as we now understand it. and indeed neither did the greeks or romans but centrum is consciously using the new ruling class replacement of ruling classes and destruction of all the the middle ranking people uh to keep technological improvements changes uh to, to wipe them out and it's very messy because centrum's tool is um barbarian hordes uh but that kill unmercifully and in horrible ways yeah but you know they're barbarians yes but but that's nothing to a computer. Uh, so far as the computer is concerned, everyone is going to die anyway. What is important is the system. And that's a perfectly rational, you know, it's a logical way to proceed. It is an unacceptable way if you are, however, one of those humans. And Abel is one of those humans who is made aware of exactly what's going on and wants to stop it and he's he is a scion of the middle class and so his, it's his folks that are going to get wiped out when when this happens and so he has a personal interest for one thing and in, in, in it not happening but when he he has center and raj implanted they implant themselves in his mind when he's six years old and this center is a little, I've made him a little more human because he's got Raj <laughs> along to always, he started out very much like Zentrum, 
but I've, I've given him more of a, of a more growing morality, although he's still pretty pretty much utilitarian entity in the book. Um, and so there's a difference between what Sinner wants to accomplish and what Zentrum wants to accomplish, even though both of them are quite willing to use people yeah. uh, and set things up to, to get there. So, yeah, that's it's 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 kind of the 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 flaw that Zentrum has is that he's not really being empirical. This is all kind of based on a big rational analysis that doesn't take into account individual experience and human action and things like that. Um, and Abel sort of Center and Raj help Abel to sort of infiltrate this system. He becomes uh, he goes to the academy for the. Uh, after he wins a, a battle in the Heretic, a very big battle, um, with uh, Center and Raj's help, he goes on to become uh, a student at the big academy, of the military academy, um, at the center of this Egyptian-like empire. And from there, uh, the story takes off because he's now in a position of leadership over a, quite a large uh, army. And it will probably not surprise potential readers to learn that there are battles in this. And I'm going to tell you, the good guys win. We're writing fiction. They win in interesting ways you might not figure out at first. <laughs> I did my job. Tony did his job. Um, so one thing I'd like to just while we're you know we're talking a little bit about Zentrum and, and the stasis and versus Center and his viewpoints and stuff that, that I really liked about it um, is that it's kind of ultimately uh, optimistic about humanity and about technology. I think right now we're kind of going through this phase where we hear so much not just in science fiction but in just popular discourse like how terrible humanity is for the planet and technology being used for nefarious ends. And, you know, certainly that can be the case, but here seems to be arguing that's not the only narrative and maybe that's not even the most accurate narrative. Maybe technology is in fact the only way that we can save the human species. Um, you know, it's, it's a very clear case made for that, at least on Diceberg in these novels. And um, I just thought that was an interesting kind of refreshing change from the, even though this is a dystopia in a way, right? They've fallen back into almost barbarism, but at the same time, it's hopeful that humanity can rise again. I just was wondering if you guys could speak to that point briefly. Uh, let me, uh, because this was Jim Bain's vision. Jim had an ideology. He believed that there would be progress, it would be good for humanity, that the world would be better. And he consciously directed me to craft a series in which this was true. And I did. And I would, as I say, I'm not arguing for the truth of Jim's vision, but it was his vision. It is true to that vision. And Bain Books is a remarkably successful company because Jim's vision, that vision, has basically been the philosophy of the company from before day one. And I, I think it is a good and positive 
view of existence, and it is as likely to be true as any other. Well, I mean, um, that's I, I am a, the a kind of uh, I think you know this, David, uh, after I read, uh, that I am a tech will solve kind of guy, that a lot of the problems that seem to be enormous problems, I think technology can deal with for humanity. And some of the problems that, um, some of them are absolutely intractable that have been around forever and tech can't do anything about that, like that death thing, uh, et cetera. <laughs> Jim, Jim thought it could. Uh, I, I remember him saying to me, you know, you're, you're young enough that you're going to survive to the point that they will have the cure for everything. I said, Jim, I'm a nom vet. I don't want to live forever. Uh, <laughs> we had we had long conversations about a lot of things, but but he thought that one was tractable also. Yeah, I'm not so sure of that. <laughs> otherwise, I sort of fit the Bain philosophy. I think in in that regard. I mean, it's a hopeful. I mean, it's a gritty book. Um, because uh, there's also this existential side of all this, the, and, and people getting crucified and, and people getting shot and having to soldier through some very tough stuff. Uh, but at the same time, it's also a hopeful book. And also, there's, yeah, there's um, I think there's strong women characters in, that are just as, as, as warrior-like and, and committed to, uh, to this kind of future as, as the men are as well. Yeah, which this novel features uh, Mahat, who we saw in the previous book a little bit, but um, it's almost half the novel, I think, is written from her perspective, and she's a great character, and I was glad to see her get a bigger role in this outing. Um, I was just wondering, yeah, how did, how did she come to be kind of the forefront, and, you know, she's sort of, um, a lot of her uh, page time, I guess we call it, uh, is sort of in a different uh, section of this world or, or uh, different uh, you know, different part of this world than we're seeing from Abel. And I was just wondering what it was like to write her and uh, how you kind of came to want to include her more this time around. Well, she's Abel's girlfriend and she would be his wife, but she's married to someone else. That didn't work out. It doesn't work out well <laughs> in the book, we shall say. Uh, my idea about writing her was that I wanted to try to write a woman character in a setting like this where I didn't make her into uh, some kind of, you know, chicken chain mail, although there's nothing wrong with chicken chain mail. Um, in reality, women are going to have a certain uh, way of being in such a culture, and we know what it was because we've studied the history of it. And how would you create a powerful woman character? She can't rise through the military because they're not in the military. So... Um, she got she was in an auxiliary group and she got as far as she could so i just followed it from there and, and in every case i tried not to write her as um as this exception that that um that gets away with things because the author allows her to get away with things um <laughs> i tried to make it a world where where women are not treated equally to men but yet she still overcomes these sorts of things because she's just very clever and extremely determined. 
we mentioned uh, earlier that this, you know, this was Jim Bain's um, yeah, idea was to use sort of real historical um, battles and military maneuvers and uh, for these books. And I was wondering, you know, if this one, I'm assuming, is not the outlier and that this also does have sort of a, a real historical counterpart to the, the big battle that we see in The Savior and um, just what that was and Tony maybe, uh, or Dave, what it was like, uh, how you take those real life things and sort of rework them to fit into your uh, fictional, science fictional world. So, Tony, you talk about well, that. Well, um, the outline has sort of the strategic uh, what they do, and I uh, like they go up and they try to. Uh, the idea was that the the main body of uh, the I'm trying to think of what I called them in the book. <laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> Bad guys. The Praetorian Guard types. Oh, you know, yeah. The good guys. Yeah. The the and they they go up into the Goldies. The Goldies, yes. They go up into a, a northern province and basically get defeated. Um, that's Zentrum's plan so that the barbarians can come in. But Abel's there, and he's not going to let them be defeated. Um, and so that's the that's sort of behind the, that's the strategy behind it. And then I came up with, the, I thought it would be mountainous, and I was doing a lot of research on Civil War stuff, so I, I basically just ripped off everything from uh, Stonewall Jackson's first uh, Shenandoah campaign mm. as much as possible. <laughs> a lot of that uh, just... There's a mapping of that that stuff right onto it. Mm -hmm. And when I'm doing it, that's the sort of thing I do. I'm more likely to use a classical background than a Civil War background, although, you know, I've done that too. But I, I usually don't try to do a detailed outline of the battle uh, because the individual writer may have his own specialty. And, you know, here Tony was Civil War. That's great. I guess what my final comment would, or question would be, is we mentioned uh, the Jane Fonda planet. Uh, I was just wondering, is this going to be the last we're going to see of Abel, or are there more stories on Diesberg, or um, what about the general series in, in well, general? Uh, more books featuring Sintra and Raj. Are we going to get to see the Jane Fonda planet, or... Um, is this it? Is this is this the the concluding volume in the general series? What do you guys think? I wrote the last batch of outlines fifteen years ago. I do not have a burning desire, and I could put that more strongly, to get back into it. Tony Weisskopf would probably go for it. I am not expecting to be involved, but who the hell knows? And. Um, I, I don't think that Jane Fonda Planet is really, I didn't think it was a good idea at the time, and I don't think it would be a good idea now, but you know, it is possible. And um... <laughs> I'd rather do the Olivia Newton-John Planet if I was going to go for 80s. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I could say about the, the Heretic and the Savior is this is a complete story. Um, and really, as far as I'm concerned, you can read the, both of them as a big novel. Um, I wrote the outline that Dave provided, and those two books are it, and I think it's a book. You know, Of course, we had to break it up because it's way too long that way. Well, I, I think the two halves are each individually a novel. 
and I think that's a good thing. Well, in you could certainly read either one. Yeah. And get yeah. a sense of closure and a finishing. But this one really finishes the story. Yes. Um, we know we get a denouement where we know what happens to people and things like that. I'm pretty happy that we did this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's good. All right. We've been talking about The Savior, the new novel in the general series by David Drake and Tony Daniel. It's out now in hardcover and ebook from Bain Books. And if we've piqued your interest in the other novels in the series, The Heretics now available in paperback and the first novels in the series are currently being reissued, like we talked about, in omnibus editions from Bain. So be sure to check those out. Like Dave says, buy them early and often. Uh, Dave, Tony, thanks for sitting down and talking about this, uh, this book and the series with us today. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Go out and buy the book. And now here is part 29 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's a setup to what we'll be listening to today. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents, and each generation more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their power for good, but some do not. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy the type of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake has been recruited by a mysterious secret organization of actives dedicated to seeing humanity through a magic-based apocalypse. These are known as the Grimnor Knights. If the Grimnor are to be believed, the evil forces of magic introduced into the world have reached a peak, and the apocalyptic finale for humanity may be about to begin. Here's Bronson Pinchot with part 29 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Chapter 12 Man found that he was faced with the acceptance of magical forces, that is to say such forces as cannot be comprehended by the sciences, and yet having undoubted, even extremely strong, effects. The false idea of some comprehensive, unexplainable power was thus born in the collective unconscious. Now that the realm of magic had opened for man, our greatest neuroses are laid bare, so we explain them away with imaginary things. Sigmund Freud, letter composed just prior to his death by cocaine overdose, 1925. San Francisco, California Maddie had not wanted to contact the chairman again so soon. He liked being the one who took care of business on his own and came back with results. Having to cry to the boss all the time struck him as a habit for weaklings, but this opportunity was too good to pass up, and as he stood before Utaka's shimmering portal, he could barely contain his excitement. The Edo court came into focus, clear as day, despite being an ocean away, and there stood the chairman. He bowed deeply. What is it, my son? Maddie liked that. Son. The chairman didn't say that to any of the other iron guards, as far as he knew. A smile split his scar. Chairman Tokugawa, we spotted the grimoire in Utah. 
I assume you eliminated them? No, my lord. Better. He finally looked up from his bow. I had Yutaka dispatch a demon to follow them. We found one of their hideouts. The summoned couldn't enter the property because of the warding spells, but we know about where they are. It is only a few miles from where we burned out their last nest in California. Pershing, the chairman muttered to himself. Excellent. He may have the last piece of the Tesla device. If it is present, retrieve it. If it is not, try to discover its location. Eradicating every last grimmy went without saying, obviously. Excitement was building in the pit of his stomach. It felt good to feel something. I would like permission to call up all our reserves. The chairman's expression didn't change, but his words indicated his displeasure. The fiercest warrior strikes and holds nothing back, assuring an enemy's demise with a single blow, yet wastes all his strength for the rest of the battle. The wise warrior strikes with skill, retaining his strength to fight again. Maddie bowed in submission. He'd gone out of his lane. It wasn't his place to jeopardize the Imperium's many secret operations inside the United States. Maddie had only the slightest idea of the number of agents they had in the military, government, media, and industry. America was riddled with corruption, and when the time came, it would fall. My apologies, Chairman Tokugawa. The chairman appeared deep in thought. But for Pershing, I'll make an exception. Activate as many cells as wisdom dictates. Make an example of him that will strike fear into the hearts of the few grim noir that remain. Yet we must have complete deniability. The time for open war with the Americans has not yet come. He did have a plan, something that had been simmering in the back of his mind, and this seemed like the best opportunity he'd ever have to put it into effect. I have an idea for something spectacular, Maddie said. It'll accomplish multiple goals. Maddie outlined what he had in mind. He was rather proud of it. Normally he was a straightforward type, but this struck him as particularly devious. He'd put a lot of thought into it. I am impressed. Your mind is as fearsome a weapon as your body, the chairman said. Maddie felt like he could explode. I'll need Shadow Guard. You will have them. And my complete faith. Kill them all, my son. The leader of the Imperium cocked his head to one side as if listening to something very far away. I am needed elsewhere. The shimmering ball of light flickered into nothingness. Maddie turned to Yutaka. Send a telegram to every cell in five hundred miles. We strike as soon as the Shadow Guard arrive. He could almost taste the blood. Mar Pacifica, California Francis had arrived at the reunion a little late, just in time to see Fay shoot the big man in the back for no apparent reason. Heinrich reacted instantly like the soldier he was and drilled Fay. He was too surprised to act but then Heinrich stepped forward and aimed his luger between Faye's eyes, ready to finish her off. No, 
Francis shouted, surging his power. Heinrich was knocked aside as he pulled the trigger, blasting a hole in the dirt next to her head. Francis ran toward them. Wait! Heinrich, stand down, Browning ordered. Obviously confused, Heinrich stepped back, lowering his pistol to his side. The entire group was shocked. What the hell? Lance bellowed, dropping down beside the girl. Faye. Damn it! Stay with me, girl. Francis arrived in time to hear Faye whisper something. Maddie thought he was Maddie. She coughed and blood came shooting from her mouth. Francis dropped down at her side and did the only thing he'd been taught to do in this situation and put direct pressure on the hole. What was she doing? Delilah screamed, rocking the big man back and forth in her lap. His eyes were open, flickering. They rolled back in his head and he was out. Come on, Jake, come on. Save them, Browning said to Jane. I, I can't. The healer stood between the two, hesitating. She closed her eyes and held her hands out. Too much internal damage. I can't save them both. They're dead in minutes. I've only got enough power to do one or the other. She looked to Browning imploringly. Browning, unsure, started to speak, but bit his tongue looking between them. Are you insane? Garrett shouted. She must be a shadow guard. Help Sullivan. No, she's not, Francis spat. There was no way that Faye was some sort of Imperium assassin. There had to be an explanation. She's a damned teleporter. She's a ninja, Francis. Dan grabbed Jane by the arm and pointed. Save Sullivan. Don't you dare use your magic on me, Dan. Jane ripped her arm away. Heinrich had holstered his gun and was walking in a slow circle, rubbing his hands on his face. Scheiße, he said, snapping back and moving to Delilah. Roll him over. She did, and Heinrich pulled the big man's coat down, revealing a white shirt soaked red. Blood was pouring from multiple entrance wounds. Browning spoke. Which one has less time? She stopped at Faye and closed her eyes. Damage to the aorta. Then back to Sullivan. Lung. Superior vena cava. Spine. She opened her eyes. Sullivan's tougher. Faye's dead first. Save her, Browning ordered. Jane shrugged off Dan's hand and ran to Faye. What? Delilah shrieked. Browning ignored her. Do we have time to get him to the hospital, or could you walk us through an operation in time? Jane was concentrating on Faye, but she shook her head in a vigorous no. Very well. Lance, help me. The old man removed his coat and tossed it on the ground. Place him on his back. Heinrich, open his shirt. Garrett, go to the library and fetch the third volume of Rune Arcanium. Hurry. Dan ran up the steps and disappeared into the house. Are you crazy? Lance hissed. That never works. Browning pulled a small pocket knife and opened it. The Imperium makes it work. If we screw up even the slightest, it could warp him into who knows what. Almost every grim noir who's tried has died, or worse, and most of them weren't bleeding to death at the time. He's a very strong man, Heinrich said. 
Lance cursed under his breath. Blood or smoke, John. You've the steadier hand with a blade. Here, this is finer than yours, Browning said, passing his pocket knife over, handle first. Lance took it hesitantly. Just pretend you're cleaning an elk. What are you doing? Francis asked. Something stupid, Lance said as he took a vial out of his pocket and handed it to Browning. Delilah, don't let him move. If we get one line even sort of wrong, he's done. Delilah put her weight down on Sullivan's shoulders and awoke her power. Lance kept talking as he put the blade against Sullivan's flesh. This is like what the Imperium does to their iron guards. Talking seemed to steady his nerves. Browning unscrewed the vial. Smoke hissed out. I will attempt to make a pattern in summons ink while Lance interlocks one into his skin. If we succeed, we will connect a direct link to the power. This is the old spell for health. Like what the Imperium goons have? Francis sputtered. Something like that, only stronger, Lance said slowly, cutting an intricate curve deep into Sullivan's muscle. Dark red blood came welling out from behind the blade. Except that pathetic scribble wouldn't survive a bullet in the spine. Come on! Francis, get a mark of weakness on that girl before she wakes up, Browning said. I don't want her traveling out of here if she is a shadow guard. He raised the vial but hesitated and bowed his head first. Francis realized he was saying a prayer. A second later, Browning opened his eyes and started carefully dripping the smoking liquid. Delilah had to turn her head away as it sizzled on the impacted skin like bacon. Francis looked for something to write with, couldn't find anything realized his hands were covered in Faye's blood and quickly drew the simple little mark of weakness on her forehead. All it should do was screw up her access to magic. He didn't feel right doing it, but he didn't know what to think right then. This strange little girl had just murdered another person in front of him. Jane's hands glowed pink around the bones, almost like she'd placed them on top of a brilliant spotlight. This was the most power he'd ever seen her expend at once. A deformed nine-millimeter bullet rose through the hole in Faye's chest as the tissue closed up behind it. Francis could feel the heat from a foot away. Jane removed her hands from Faye's head and fell into the grass. I got it beating, Jane gasped. She struggled back to her knees, blonde hair covering her face, exhausted. She'll live. Jane, do you have anything left at all? Browning asked. Give me a sec, she panted, crawling over. It won't be enough. Browning frowned as he got to a difficult part. Sullivan's blood was obscuring Lance's cuts. Wait until I tell you, then channel whatever you've got left into the dead center of this design, understand? Yes, sir. You'd best hurry. Blood pressure is dropping. His heart will stop in ninety seconds. Garrett returned with a thick leather book. Page 123, Browning said, and Garrett started flipping. Lance stared at the intricate picture, swore, and started cutting faster. Browning took one look, scowled, and said, If any of you have faith, I'd suggest prayers for a steady hand. 
Miracle would be good, too, Lance said. Ask for one of those. Jake Sullivan was back in his cell at Rockville, wearing his issued black and whites, sitting on the end of his tiny bunk. The fifty-pound iron ball chained to his ankle was a familiar old friend. It had been a joke to a man with his magic, but rules were rules, and he'd worn it for six straight years. It was exactly the same. Every day was exactly the same. You sleep, you work, you get put back in your cage. But somehow Sullivan knew that today was different. Today he'd been a free man, but someone had shot him full of holes and murdered him. So, this is what hell looks like, figures. There was a rattle as the eye slit on the steel door slid open. A pair of black eyes appeared. Greetings. You the devil? Sullivan asked. Yes, the voice answered. You could say that. Sullivan scowled as he got a better look through the slit. He hadn't expected the devil to be Japanese. Those black eyes were set in a handsome, strong face, but they belonged to someone far older. They were the eyes of an ancient. You're the chairman, aren't you? I have many names. That one will do for this place, the land where the dead come to dream. What do you want? The cell in Rockville was gone, and he was standing knee-deep in mud made from ground dirt and blood, his Lewis gun smoking hot in his hands in the dead center of no man's land. Coiled barbed wire entangled thousands of mutilated corpses, and the yellow cloud in front of the sunrise told him that the poison gas was coming again. I've come to witness your failure, the chairman answered. Sullivan turned to see the chairman walking on top of the liquid mud. He was average height, wearing a fine black suit with a red sash festooned with medals and ribbons draped over one shoulder. He paused to pet a rising zombie's scabrous head as if it were a faithful pet. I want to see you burn. Why? It brings me pleasure. Few things do these days. I always come to see when someone tries to touch the power directly. The grim noir are trying to save your life as we speak. The sensation of them mutilating and burning a spot on his chest seemed distant, somehow absent. How do you know? I am closer to the power than they are, he said simply. I know when someone tries to steal my birthright. Their smallest spells are beneath my notice, but now they try the most complicated of links in desperation. But they are as children, toying with the things of adults. They will fail as they always do. The chairman paused, studying Sullivan. Too bad. I can see that you are a man of character. The sum was gone and they were in a familiar bar in New Orleans, another place where he'd tried to build a life and failed. Sullivan stood over the splattered mess that had been Sheriff Johnson. The other patrons were fleeing or hiding. The Negro serving boy that he'd saved from the sheriff's wrath was huddled in the corner, afraid of what he'd just seen Sullivan do. He was gonna hurt you because you're inactive, like me, Sullivan tried to explain, but the little boy was too terrified of him to move. 
It's going to be okay. I won't hurt you. Here you have dispensed the same justice as I would have. Pathetic normals, afraid of magic, afraid to bow to their betters. The chairman strolled around the bar and kicked what was left of the sheriff's skull across the plank floor with one polished shoe. They chained you for this? This was a work of righteous fury. They should not have imprisoned you for destroying this vermin. They should have rewarded you. What do you owe such a world, such a failed system, especially after all you had sacrificed for them? He was back in France in the final hours of Second Somme, the fiercest battle of the war. There were more actives collected here on this day than any other point in history. Dirigibles and biplanes were exploding and dropping from the sky like a meteor shower. Lightning, fire, and ice danced back and forth, destroying like a reaper's scythe. Men leapt impossibly high through the air, screaming down into their enemy as demons erupted from the ground in geysers of bone. A great and terrible thing to behold. You thought that you could show the normals the goodness of the active race, that you could be their champions, their protectors, but instead you gave them this. He waved his hand at the carnage. You gave them fear. They did not see heroes. They saw savagery beyond comprehension and understood that it was only a matter of time until their betters turned their glorious fury upon them. You are not men to the lesser normals. You are but tools, dangerous beasts of burden to be kept locked away until needed nothing more. Jake Sullivan held his little brother Jimmy as the blood pumped from the stumps where his legs had been and a dozen other lethal wounds. His other brother was trying to reach them. Maddie, Sullivan shouted, unheard through the artillery shells exploding all around them. Maddie. His older brother leapt through the shrapnel heading for them, but a chunk of steel sheared cleanly through the right half of his face and he went down. Jimmy stretched out his hand as Matt Sullivan crawled the last few feet toward them. Matt's right eye was nothing but a globe of blood. He grabbed his dying brother's hand. I'm here, Jimmy. Matt gasped. I got you. Jimmy had been the simple one. The good one. We're gonna be okay. Okay. The brothers are here. Nothing hurts us when we stick together. Right, Jakey? Right, Matty? Sullivan's stick together. Then he was dead. That was part 29 of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa. It's read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks very much to podcast guest host David Afsherirad and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz, and a bottle of Salvation 1983, which was a very good year for hope, along with a personal nuke to be used solely for anti-asteroid defense to David Drake, co-author with yours truly, Tony Daniel, of The Savior, book 10 in the general series. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. The stars.